Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. As a writer, I have some failings. One of them is I tend to write too much. I tend to use too many words. I guess I just like writing so much, I just want to keep writing all the time, and so I just hate to stop. Case in point. A few years ago, I was under contract to uh, HarperCollins publisher to write my first book, The Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs. It's a biography of a famous UFO researcher named J. Allen Hynek, who, as you might have guessed, developed the Close Encounters system for categorizing UFO incidents. Now, under this contract, I had to submit a manuscript of X number of words on X date, and then I would be paid for my work and the book would be published. Well, I interpreted those rules a little loosely. It was my first time writing a book. I thought that was okay. Uh, And what I did was I turned in a manuscript that was way, way, way too long. I mean, thousands of words thousands of words too long uh, to fit the terms of the contract. My agent was very, very upset with me. She told me that HarperCollins would have every right to cancel my contract because I turned in too many pages. Well, I felt pretty bad about that, um, but we worked things out with HarperCollins. Uh, The way to fix it was I had to go back through and I had to cut X number of words, and it was in the thousands. It wasn't just hundreds of words. I had to cut thousands of words to satisfy the terms of my contract. But HarperCollins was generous with me, and they gave me all the time I needed to get it done. Well, one of the first casualties of this cutting spree was that I had to eliminate an entire chapter at one point in the book. And this really, really broke my heart because it was one of my favorite chapters. It was one of the first chapters I had written for the book, It was about a UFO incident that took place in 1955 that um, has sort of taken on legendary uh, aspects in in UFO lore. It's For a lot of people, it's their favorite UFO story just because it's so completely off the wall and and absurd in in many, many ways. And I had to to cut that chapter because Dr. Hynek never was involved with researching this particular UFO event. And event, and that was, that was my bottom line for whether I should cut something or not. If it didn't directly, if it didn't have a direct impact on Dr. Hynek's life and work, then I couldn't really justify having it in the book. Now, Hynek did investigate this case years after the fact, but it was only secondhand. He wrote about it in a couple of his books, but by my standards for the book, his involvement was re- just enough removed from the actual event that I couldn't really justify including the chapter in the book. Well, now here we are a few years later. I have a podcast. I have a chapter of my book that has never been read by anybody. And so I've decided that for today's episode of Farfetched, I'm going to read the chapter. This is chapter nine, Little Green Men. Here goes. Of course there were people inside the saucers. Of course they were just as curious about us as we were about them. Of course they would want to come calling. That's what the Sutton family of Kelly, Kentucky discovered on the night of August 21, 1955. 
The whole family was together for the first time in months, and everyone was enjoying a Sunday evening visit centered around a home-cooked dinner and a big game of cards afterwards. There was nothing else to do on a stifling August night but keep one's activity to a minimum and keep bringing cool drinking water in from the well. Elmer Lucky Sutton, 25, had taken some time off from his job working for a traveling carnival, and he had brought his 29-year-old wife, Vera, home, along with his best friend and co-worker, Billy Ray Taylor, 21, and Taylor's wife, June, 18. Elmer had emancipated himself from the farm when he was 15 to escape a violent father, whom Elmer's daughter, Geraldine Sutton Sith, described as the devil incarnate. He had joined the carnival shortly after leaving home, and a run of good fortune thereafter bestowed upon him the nickname Lucky, which he then had tattooed across his fist one letter per finger. Also in the house that night were Lucky's younger brother J.C., who ran the farm, J.C.'s wife, Aline, and Lucky's and C.J.'s step-siblings, Lonnie, 12, Charlton, 10, and Mary, 7. Aileen Sutton's big brother, O.P. Baker, a frequent house guest of the Suttons, was also present. As always, the evening's meal and entertainment were presided over by the family matriarch, 50-year-old, twice-widowed Glennie Lankford, who rented the farm and ruled the roost. She was a very religious woman, recalled granddaughter Stith. Miss Glennie didn't believe in drinking or smoking or any of the bad things you could do to your body. If you got caught in a lie, you might as well get ready for the wrath of Mama and her God. Despite her strict rules and harsh demeanor, Miss Glennie was a generous soul who, up until that night at least, always welcomed unexpected company. Lucky's young friend Billy Ray was known to be a merry prankster, which was undoubtedly an asset for carnival work, but didn't always play well away from the midway. So when he ran back from the well at 7.30 talking a mile a minute about the strange glowing object that had just landed in the gully behind the house, his story was met with eye rolls and laughter. According to interviews conducted by investigator Isabel Davis, Billy Ray described a silvery object, real bright with an exhaust all the colors of the rainbow, that approached the house from the southwest 30 or 40 feet above the ground. A newspaper report the next day described the flying object as being the size of a number two tub and egg-shaped. It continued down the fields on a horizontal course, then it slowed down, came to a stop in the air, and dropped straight to the ground, seeming to disappear into the 40-foot gully at the end of the fields. Billy Ray's excited account didn't convince anyone, not even his wife. He persisted, claiming that Lucky's dog had run under the porch with its tail between its legs, like something was after it. But Lucky, for whom it was a full-time job keeping Billy Ray's feet planted on solid ground, didn't appreciate wild tales so close to the youngster's bedtimes, and neither he nor Miss Glennie would allow Billy Ray to speak of it again. If my dad wasn't going to take him seriously, then nobody else was going to take him seriously, Sutton Stith said. There must have been some small measure of satisfaction for Billy Ray then, when the family dog started to raise a ruckus under the porch 30 minutes later, but the satisfaction didn't last more than a few moments. Lucky got up to see what the dog was barking at, and Billy Ray, seeing a chance for vindication, rushed out the door with him. Billy Ray led Lucky to the well, waving his hands about to show his friend exactly where the glowing object had crossed the sky and landed behind the house, but there was nothing out of the ordinary to see. With no evidence to back him up save for the fact that the dog wouldn't come out from its hiding place, Billy Ray quieted down a bit and the two men started back for the house. But then there was something behind the house, and now Lucky went quiet as well. The creature that approached them from the gully would have been right at home in Lucky's and Billy Ray's carnival. 
Here, walking out of the woods in the twilight, it was a nightmare. Approaching from the fields was a strange glow, Davis reported. As it came nearer, they could make out what seemed to be a small man, though a man not much like any they had ever seen before. He was about three and a half feet tall, with an oversized head that was almost perfectly round, and arms that extended almost to the ground. The huge hands had talons at the end of the fingers. The eyes were much bigger than human eyes and glowed with a yellowish light. They were directed neither to the front nor to the side, but about midway between. The whole creature was seemingly made of silver metal that gave off an eerie light in the darkness like the light from the radium dial of a watch. The creature's hands were raised now, as if someone had told him he was about to be robbed. He was approaching the house slowly, moving towards the back door. If the upraised arms were a gesture of peaceful intent, the meaning was lost on the two men, who raced inside and were greeted by another round of scoffing and laughter. But Lucky and Billy Ray didn't waste any time trying to convince anyone of what they'd just seen. They just took up battle stations. To the family's astonishment, Lucky grabbed his shotgun and covered the back door, while Billy Ray took a twenty-two caliber target pistol and covered the front. The house was small, only three rooms in a central hallway, with just a handful of narrow windows from which to view the outside world. That might have lent Lucky and Billy Ray some sense of security, but because it was such a hot night, all the windows and doors were open, leaving only flimsy screens to separate the family from what was outside. To make matters worse, there were no locks on the doors. Despite the urgency of Lucky and Billy Ray arming themselves and guarding the entrances, Miss Glennie made sure the rest of the family carried on with their activities. After all, there were dishes to be washed, and the three youngsters needed to be put to bed. We thought the boys were only kidding, although they were coming into the house and telling about seeing and shooting at the things, Glennie said. It may be that the men never spent enough time in the kitchen to remember, but there was a third door to the house, just a few feet from where the women would have been washing the dinner dishes, left completely unguarded. Furthermore, there was a window above the sink looking out over the backyard and the gully beyond. Aileen Sutton may not have been alone in the kitchen, but it was she alone who left the dishes behind, went to the kitchen door, and let her curiosity get the best of her. A few minutes later, Ms. Glennie knew that something was wrong when Aileen came back in the house, terrified, white, nervously shaking, saying that she had seen one of the little men. She was terribly upset. Glennie ordered the lights out and crouched down next to Billy Ray, three feet inside the front door. She asked Billy Ray just what it was that he and Lucky and Aline had seen, and Billy Ray, tired of being scoffed at, told her to wait and see. She did wait 20 minutes before something approached the front door. Billy and I remained crouching until it came right up to the screen, Glennie said. It looked like a five-gallon gasoline can with a head on top and small legs. It was a shimmering bright metal like on my refrigerator. Miss Glennie had been squatting far too long. Her legs gave way when she tried to retreat from the door, and she fell to the floor with a shout. Billy Ray took a shot at the little man, and he swore it did a flip before disappearing from view. Everyone crowded around to see what had startled Miss Glennie so. A twenty-two caliber hole in the front door screen was proof that Billy Ray had shot at something, but the creature was nowhere in sight. Lucky and Billy Ray waited a few minutes, then went into the living room where the women were, Davis reported. Another creature appeared at the side window, and J.C., who was now armed with a shotgun as well, fired at it. Again, they apparently hit it, and again, it flipped and disappeared. Billy Ray had seen it jump when it was hit, and had thought that the injured creature had leaped onto the roof of the house. When he stepped out onto the porch to get another shot, 
A huge hand reached down from the low roof above the door and grabbed him by the hair. Billy Ray froze as the long, slender fingers snatched at his hair and then kept reaching, wanting more. Aileen, still terrified by what she had seen in the backyard, pushed past the door and grabbed Billy Ray's arm, pulling him inside. In the next moment, Lucky pushed past them both and was out of the door with his shotgun. He leaped off the porch and whirled around to see the little creature up on the front overhang. He raised his barrel and shot the creature point-blank. Even if Billy Ray's shot hadn't slowed the thing down, Lucky's would do some real damage. But the creature simply rolled off the roof, dropped to the ground, and scurried away into the underbrush. This was just too much. How could all three men have missed? The men herded everyone away from the doors and took stock of the situation. With three of them now armed, the family's odds seemed to have improved considerably. But what should their next move be? Lucky, Billy Ray, and J.C. decided to venture outside to reconnoiter, still unwilling to believe that all three of their shots had missed. Several of the men were out front now, and they discovered another up in the tree, and one on the ground right in front of Lucky Sutton, reported local radio engineer and host Bud Ledwith in his personal case report. He brought the shotgun to bear on the little fellow at point-blank range, fired, and stood in amazement as it flipped over and got up. Another shot of the creature in the tree had the same astonishing effect. The little man flipped like a play target in a carnival shooting gallery and floated down to the ground before scurrying off into the woods. As with each shot before, the impact sounded like a shotgun being fired into a metal pail. It took a moment for the men to come to the unnerving realization that their weapons were useless against the invaders, and when they did, they retreated into the house to await the creature's next move. They didn't have to wait long. The objects would continue to come to the window and peer inside, Ledwith wrote. The Sutton family would fire through a window. It would flip over and fall back and disappear for a few minutes. However, they kept coming back time after time. It became apparent to Miss Glennie that the creatures were averse to the light from the front and rear porch lights, and so those lights were kept on. Although this limited the creatures' approach to the sides of the house and made the homestead easier to defend, the little men did not relent. Eventually, the Suttons heard an ominous scraping on the kitchen roof, and the men raced into the backyard to see a creature clawing its way across the tin roofing panels. They shot at it and knocked it from the roof. Then it floated to the back fence, a distance of some forty-odd feet, where it seemed to perch. They shot again, knocked it off the fence, and this time it scurried off into the woods in the all-fours position. Strangely, although the creatures themselves never uttered a sound, the men could hear the rustle of the underbrush as the creatures ran away through the woods. Perhaps the most convincing evidence in the Kelly Hopkinsville case is the fact that Lucky Sutton, a man who took immense pride in being able to take care of his own, decided in the middle of the night to go get help from the police. The exhausted family had been fighting off the glowing silver creatures for nearly four hours, nerves were fraying, and the children were falling apart. At least once, one child was in the front yard when a creature was seen and fired at, reported Davis. The children did hear the gunfire. They did hear the conversations that were going on, the hollering, confirmed Stiff. June was hysterical. She was crying. The situation was becoming untenable, and when things at last grew quiet out in the yard, Lucky decided to make a move. He was needing help, Stith said. They were trying to figure out what to do, and they weren't getting anything done. So the next best thing was to throw everybody in the trucks and head to Hopkinsville, try to get help from the police. Why would you do that unless you were needing help? He wouldn't have, no. 
It was unusual, to say the least, for two trucks to skid one after another into the parking lot of the Hopkinsville Police Station after 11 p.m., and then for 11 adults and children to pile out of the vehicles and pour into the station. The desk officer could tell that something out of the ordinary had occurred, and when he finally made sense of the story, he was concerned enough to alert the state police and call his own chief of police, Russell Greenwell, at his home. A spaceship has landed at Kelly, was the desk sergeant's message. Greenwell, who had himself seen an unidentified object some years before, mobilized immediately. The assumption was that the invaders were still present at the farm, so Greenwell made sure his own responding officers were backed up by the county sheriff's men and the state police for good measure. Clearly, Greenwell was taking the story very seriously. These aren't the kind of people who normally run to the police for help, he said of the Suttons. When they feel themselves threatened, what they do is reach for their guns. One of Greenwell's officers confirmed the chief's convictions when he reported that Billy Ray Taylor was showing undeniable signs of raw terror during the ride back to the farm. The officer, who had a medical background, observed Billy Ray's accelerated pulse in his neck and timed it at 140 beats per minute, twice normal. Maybe the boy could pretend to be frightened in some ways, the officer reported, but I don't know how he could make his heart beat twice as fast as usual. In all, 16 law enforcement officers raced to the Sutton Farm, and although the Air Force tried to deny it, four MPs from nearby Fort Campbell Air Force Base responded to the APB as well. Within a half hour, the Sutton Farm was awash with police officers, all scouring the house, outbuildings, and grounds for signs that the creatures were still present. The Suttons, for the most part, waited in their vehicles as the police inspected the area. Everybody was terrified, Stith said. The women wouldn't go back in the house. A piercing wail from the yard caused hearts to freeze, but it was only a cat. Someone had stepped on its tail in the dark. You never saw so many pistols unholstered so fast in your life, Chief Greenwell said. Rumors of a Martian invasion at the Sutton Farm had spread meanwhile, and local reporters and curiosity seekers began to show up. Although no one ever saw more than two of the creatures at the same time, the story quickly morphed into an invasion of 12 to 15 of the little men, and everyone wanted to get a look at the alien army. Before long, Lucky was regretting his decision to go to the police. Yeah, there was evidence that gunfire had taken place, but little green men, they thought it was a joke, Stith said. Lucky could hear people laughing and joking about the situation, and that's when he started to think, maybe I did the wrong thing trying to go for help, because he didn't get it. After a two-hour inspection of the house and the surrounding area, the only clues the police could find were what appeared to be a bullet and shot holes in some of the screens, a few spent shell casings in the house and yard, some shot embedded in a door frame, and a luminous patch in the grass beyond the fence. The luminous patch was about 18 inches across and located near where one of the little men was supposed to have been shot. The patch was only visible from one angle, Davis reported. Greenwell and the others examined the spot carefully, but at close range nothing at all was visible, and the grass did not seem different in any way. No one seems to have thought to secure samples of the soil or foliage. While there was no sign that the Suttons had imagined it all or tried to perpetrate a hoax, there was also no clear evidence that any creatures had attacked the house. Nevertheless, the lawmen felt a certain malevolence permeating the Sutton property. In and around the whole area, the house, the fields that night, there was a weird feeling, Greenwell recounted. It was partly uneasiness, but not entirely. Everyone had it. There were men that I'd call brave men, men I've been in dangerous situations with. They felt it too. They've told me so. With so little to go on, 
A puzzled Chief Greenwell sent everyone home to bed, and the Suttons reluctantly returned to the farmhouse. Sleep did not come easily. Mrs. Langford was resting in her bed, situated near a window. Again, all the lights were off, and she became conscious of something glowing at the window, Ledwith reported. She looked and saw the being watching her. Its hands were again raised in that familiar position of about to be robbed, but it made no motion. Scarcely able to believe that the creatures were back, Miss Glennie quietly woke up the others. Lucky leapt to the window with his gun, but his mother stopped him. My grandmother was like, leave them alone, because maybe they don't want to hurt us, Sith said. She believed there was good in everything. She wouldn't want anything to be hurt or killed, even though they may have been something from another world. But my dad was not going to do that, because he was afraid that was exactly what they were there to do, she went on. They kept coming up to the doors and windows, and if they're coming up to the doors and windows, what are they wanting? Do they want to get in? And what are they going to do when they get in? He wasn't going to give them that chance. In the end, Lucky won the argument. He fired at the face of the window, and once again the creature disappeared. The night wore on, and before daybreak the men disappeared completely, Ledwith related. They left before the sun came up. The Sutton household, needless to say, didn't sleep at all that night. And during the early morning hours, the farm was crawling with the curious and sightseers. Although Chief Greenwell never cast any doubt on the Sutton's accounts of what happened the night of the 21st, he did them a grave disservice by failing to secure the farm as a crime scene. There was never a comprehensive search for evidence, and because anyone and everyone could trespass on the property, and even get inside the house, which, it must be remembered, had no locks on the doors, no one could ever be sure whether there might have been evidence present that night that could have been stolen or destroyed by a curious reporter or tourist. To make matters worse, a downpour the next day turned the ground to mud. Had there been any footprints left unmolested by the trampling feet of the police and sightseers, they would surely have been washed away by the rain. If things had been done right, there's no telling what evidence they could have gotten, Sith lamented. Lucky thing, then, that when Bud Ledwith happened to come into the local radio station the next morning... Monday was his day off, but he needed to speak with the chief engineer. And heard talk of the invasion at the Sutton Farm, he grabbed some drawing materials and drove straight out to the scene of the events. Ledwith, in addition to being an on-air personality and engineer at the station, was also an artist, and when he arrived at the farm, he was able to persuade three of the women, Miss Glennie, Vera Sutton, and Aline Sutton, to help him draw a composite sketch of the creature. If the police weren't going to do a proper investigation or preserve evidence, Ledwith would. Turned out the women were more than happy to tell their tale to someone who didn't make them feel embarrassed or insane. And after an hour and a half of intense discussion, Ledwith produced a drawing of a misshapen goblin that met with their unanimous approval. So accurate was the drawing that Miss Glennie went outside so she wouldn't have to look at it. The men had gone off in different directions for the day. And when Billy Ray returned to the farm, he took one look at Ledwith's picture and said, That's it! That's it! That looks just like it! When Lucky arrived home later, he came in like a bear. The drive was blocked by cars and strangers were milling around in the yard. Ledwith was prepared to leave immediately, not wanting to add to Sutton's stress. But when Lucky saw the drawing, he grew silent. Then he sat down and began to suggest corrections. One could tell by the look on his face we had struck home with that picture, Ledwith reported. I'm sure it meant a lot to Dad that Ledwith listened to him and seemed to believe him, Stith said. Russell Greenwell believed it, too. He never doubted. Anybody that would seriously come in there to talk about the situation and not make fun was high on my dad's list. There was a lot more who didn't believe him than did. 
There's a curious passage in Bud Ledwith's notarized report on his interviews with Lucky, Miss Glenny, and the others. When he was describing the process of creating the composite sketches, in the end he produced three slightly different versions, Ledwith mentioned that someone from the Air Force base was also present. A PFC from nearby Fort Campbell had come out to do the same thing I had done earlier with the women, draw an artist's conception of the little men. Shortly afterward, Ledwith said he offered his sketches to an Air Force officer, but he expressed no interest. These statements, arising as they do from events that transpired within 24 hours of the incident, are significant because over the following days the Air Force went to great pains to appear to take no interest in the Sutton family's story. Davis reported that two days after the incident, Fort Campbell issued a pair of statements to the press. First, that there had been no official investigation of the reports of the spaceship and its passengers, and second, that there had been no basis to the report. One might find it disingenuous for the Air Force to declare that there was no basis to the report, while admitting that there had been no official investigation of that report, but the Kelly-Hopkinsville incident seemed to inspire dramatic episodes of cognitive dissonance within the Air Force, to the point where it is difficult to tell just how many Air Forces there were in operation at that time. Documents and news clippings from Project Blue Book and the Kufos case files reveal the efforts the Air Force took to ignore the events at the Sutton Farm. The local Hopkinsville newspaper, for example, reported the next day that, along with the civilian law enforcement officers who had raced to the Sutton Farm the night before, four MPs also went. The article also said that all sorts of investigations were going on today in connection with the incident, but that most official of the probes was reportedly being staged by the Air Force. Also on the 22nd, the Madisonville, Kentucky Messenger reported that at least a carload of military police sped to the scene of the Sutton Farm the night before. A story that appeared the same day in the Evansville, Indiana Press stated that the Public Information Office at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, several miles from the scene, reported no knowledge of the incident, but added that Fort Campbell authorities today sent Major Albert Corrin to the scene to investigate, sheriff's officers said. Chief Greenwell stated definitely that Air Force intelligence from Fort Campbell was on the scene, Davis's report confirmed. A full year later, in a September 10, 1956 letter to then-new Blue Book Project Captain George T. Gregory, none other than Dr. Hynek reported that it was Hopkinsville Police Chief Greenwell who stated that the affair was investigated by Air Force officers from Fort Campbell. I understand that MPs and a PFC from Fort Campbell investigated at the farmhouse on late Monday afternoon. The PFC was a Mr. Hodson, and his accountant pictures were published in the Clarksville, Tennessee Leaf Chronicle. Chief Greenwell also stated that the affair had been investigated by two men from an unidentified agency at Standiford Field in Louisville, a commercial field, Heineck reported. The August 24, 1955 article in the Clarksville Leaf Chronicle mentioned by Heineck relied on PFC Hodson's testimony to an astonishing degree, in fact, and makes it clear that he was assisted in his efforts by the Hopkinsville police. On Monday following the incident, PFC Gary F. Hodson, who works in the Educational Center at Fort Campbell and is a better-than-average artist, made the trip to the Sutton Farmhouse with the assistance of the Hopkinsville police, the article read. There he talked with all the people who supposedly saw and fought with the little people who came from space to try to gain entrance to the Sutton home. From their descriptions, he was able to draw likenesses of the little men, which all who saw them agreed was nearly what they had seen. 
The picture that emerged from Hodson's pen onto the drawing board is that of a man, if it could be called that, the people had no apparent sex organs, between two and a half and three feet tall. His most noticeable characteristic is a huge head and long dangling arms from which extend appendages resembling a cross between hands and claws. Hodson said that the people on the scene all said that the folks came in a conventional flying saucer that glowed all over and shot fire from the back end, the article went on. One noticeable thing about the saucer, apart from what has already been said, was that there was a rim about it that glowed more brightly than the rest. When a reporter asked Hodson his opinion of the story, he said that he still didn't believe it, but that it would be extremely difficult for such a large group of people to agree on and commit to memory such a large number of details about the appearance of little men. If Hodson's description of Billy Ray Taylor's UFO seems suspiciously over-detailed, Ledwith's report reveals why. After mentioning that Hodson came as a private individual, he was not there in any official capacity, Ledwith confessed that he foisted Billy Ray on Hodson when he realized that Taylor was lavishly embellishing his description of the creature with features no one else had seen. The sad part of it, Ledwith wrote, was that the soldier was swallowing hook, line, and sinker all the new details. Taylor was thoroughly enjoying his popularity. In addition to being immortalized in the sketches of Ledwith and Hodson, the little men of Kelly Hopkinsville were also rendered in three dimensions, according to another amateur investigator who entered the fray sometime later. Davis quoted an Albert Andre from Greenbrier, Kentucky, who interviewed Miss Glennie sometime in 1959 and came away with this fascinating story. Another incident reported by Mr. Andre was a visit to the farm sometime during this period by three other investigators from Fort Campbell who asked for a detailed description of the little men. They returned a few hours later with a model to have the family confirm its accuracy. No changes were made. Mrs. Langford said that the man who made it must have known exactly what they looked like. As if that weren't enough indication that the Air Force had investigated the incident in force at the time that the events took place, further evidence came out over 40 years later when one of the responding state troopers confirmed firsthand that there was an Air Force presence at the Sutton Farm that night. In a March 16, 1996 letter to Swedish investigator Klaus Svahn, former state trooper Russell N. Ferguson Jr. wrote, There were several police agencies there at the time. Kentucky State Police, of which I was one, Hopkinsville City Police, Military Police from Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Surely, after all this investigation, there must have been a very thick file on the Kelly Hopkinsville incident in the Blue Book offices, not to mention a sculpture of an odd little man that could hardly have escaped attention. But when, in 1957, the Air Force Public Affairs Office learned that a magazine article on the second anniversary of the incident might soon be published, there were no records to be found. This put ATIC in a complicated position. It was unavoidably clear from existing documents, news clippings, and eyewitness testimony that the Air Force had been all over the Sutton Farm on August 21st and 22nd, 1955. The case was by this time actually being presented in detail in Air Force intelligence classes as a fully investigated prototypical UFO hoax. And yet, two years after the fact, there was no case file from which Blue Book could draw information should reporters start to make inquiries. Thus the absurdity of this telling memo from Captain Gregory. This case, which has not yet been brought to the official attention of the Air Force, may cause some embarrassment if suddenly submitted cold to ACIC. 
How to hide this gaping hole from public view? Preparatory countermeasures are considered warranted. To that end, a previously anonymous adjutant at Fort Douglas, First Lieutenant Charles N. Kirk, was given the formidable task of reconstructing the original investigation, which, as far as anyone at Blue Book knew, had never even occurred. In due course, First Lieutenant Kirk came through with a pair of documents that made it look as though Project Blue Book had been on top of the situation from day one. In the first, a September 17, 1957 letter to Kirk from a Captain Robert J. Hertel of the 3928th Air Base Squadron, Captain Hertel recounts his recollection of the event. To my knowledge, the Sutton incident was first investigated thoroughly so by the State Highway Patrol and later by the Sheriff's Office. The incident was never officially reported to the Air Force. In fact, the first I remember hearing about it is when several persons at Campbell brought to my attention an article about the incident which appeared in the local Hopkinsville paper. As for the report that the affair was investigated and reported upon by two Air Force officers from Campbell Air Force Base, I don't believe that there is any fact in this, Hertel went on. I believe that a couple of our officers may have gone down on their own to view the place, as I heard some talk of this at the time. But Colonel Donald McPherson, the base commander, certainly never ordered any official investigation, to the best of my knowledge. I seem to remember Captain Benjamin Bennett saying something about going down to see the spot, but since he is still stationed there, surely you've already questioned him regarding this matter. The only other officer who may have looked into this matter was the deputy base commander, Major Zeba B. Ogden, now stationed at Westover Air Force Base. I remember the two of us talking about the incident, and he could possibly have been sent to the scene by Colonel McPherson in an unofficial capacity without my knowing about it. Then, after throwing around the names of half the officers on the base, Captain Hertel went to great lengths to the point of comic overkill to distance himself from the case. In closing, he wrote to Kirk, I'd like to point out that out of all the cases that I investigated for the commander, and out of all the incidents that happened around Campbell during my three and a half years there, this incident impressed me the least. And furthermore, I was never even remotely connected with it. It follows then that my memory concerning this incident is rather faulty, and I'm not even sure exactly when it took place. Therefore, I'm afraid I haven't been of much help, and for this, I apologize. The second curious document was written only nine days later by the very same First Lieutenant Kirk. In this official report dated September 26, 1957, Kirk recounted a bizarre statement made to him by a Major John E. Albert about his visit to the Sutton Farm the day after the incident. Major Albert, who it should be noted was not included in Captain Hertel's exhausted list of names, told Kirk that he was en route to Fort Campbell the morning after the incident when he heard about the UFO sighting on the news. He contacted the base and asked if anyone there had heard about the flying saucer landing. They stated that they had not, and it was suggested that as long as I was close to the area, that I should determine if there was anything to this report. Major Albert arrived at the Sutton Farm and had this to report after meeting the witnesses. Mrs. Glennie Langford was an impoverished widow woman who had grown up in this small community just outside of Hopkinsville with very little education, he said. She belonged to the Holy Roller Church, and the night and evening of this occurrence had gone to a religious meeting, and that she indicated that the members of the congregation and her two sons and their wives and some friends of her sons were also at this religious meeting and were worked up into a frenzy, becoming very emotionally unbalanced, 
and that after the religious meeting, they had discussed this article which she had heard about over the radio and had sent for from the Kingdom Publishers, Fort Worth, Texas, and they had sent her this article with a picture which appeared to be a little man when it actually was a monkey painted silver. It is my opinion, Albert told Kelly, that the report of Mrs. Langford or her son Elmer Sutton was caused by one of two reasons. Either they actually did see what they thought was a little man, and at the time there was a circus in the area, and a monkey might have escaped, giving the appearance of a small man. Two, being emotionally upset and discussing the article and showing pictures of this little monkey that appeared like a man, their imaginations ran away with them, and they really did believe what they saw, which they thought was a little man. After pointing out that the window through which Miss Glennie saw the creature was low enough for a small monkey to reach from the ground, Major Albert came to the following conclusion. It is felt that the report cannot be substantiated as far as any actual object appearing in the vicinity at that time. Of course, if there was no actual object in the vicinity at that time, that means there could not have been a monkey at the window. Be that as it may, Major Albert had the foresight to get the following somewhat reductive sworn statement from Glennie Langford. My name is Glennie Langford, age 50, and I live at Kelly Station, Hopkinsville, Route 6, Kentucky. On Sunday night, August 21, 55, about 10.30 p.m., I was walking through the hallway, which is located in the middle of my house, and I looked out south of the back door and saw a bright silver object about two and a half feet appearing round. I became excited and did not look at it long enough to see if it had any eyes or move. I was about 15 or 20 feet from it. I fell backwards, and then I was carried into the bedroom. My two sons, Elmer Sutton, age 25, and his wife, Vera, age 29, J.C. Sutton, age 21, and his wife, Aline, age 27, and their friends, Billy Taylor, age 21, and his wife, June 18, were all in the house and saw this little man that looked like a monkey. About 3.30 a.m., I was in my bedroom and looked out the north window and saw a small silver shining object about two and a half feet tall that had its hands on the screen looking in. I called for my sons and they shot at it and it left. I was about 60 feet from it at this time. I did not see it anymore. I have read the above statement and it is true to the best of my knowledge and belief. Witness John E. Albert, Glennie Langford. It is not known whether the dreaded magazine article commemorating the second anniversary of the Kelly Hopkinsville incident ever appeared in print, but one could hardly blame the magazine editors if they decided to drop the story altogether once they learned about Major Albert's silver monkey. A conservative headcount arrives at a total of 13 MPs, officers, and intelligence operatives from Fort Campbell descending on the Sutton Farm between August 21st and 22nd, as well as two men from an unknown, possibly civilian agency. At what point does unofficial become official? At least one of the officers was at the Sutton Farm at the suggestion of his commanding officer. At least one was there at the direct request of his CO, although perhaps not technically under orders. At least one was with Air Force Intelligence. This is important. It took nearly a year for Dr. Heineck to become involved in the Kelly Hopkinsville incident, and when he did, it came about in a manner that seemed both entirely random and yet entirely predestined. By the time of the events on the Sutton Farm, Project Blue Book had settled into an efficiently low-key operative mode, humming along beneath most everyone's radar. In part, this was because in 1953, 
the program had received what Captain Ruppelt described as a badly needed shot in the arm. With the formation of a new Air Force unit, the 4602nd Air Intelligence Services Squadron, AISS. While this was far from its only function, AISS was in a perfect position to be the eyes and ears of Blue Book. With units stationed at bases throughout the country, AISS could send out agents to conduct timely investigations of UFO sighting reports, screen out the unreliable cases, and then send the important cases on to Blue Book for further investigation. On paper, it was a brilliant approach. It ensured that more UFO reports could be investigated while the trail was still fresh. It gave the AISS agents unique opportunities to hone their investigative skills, and it enabled Blue Book to concentrate on cases of scientific significance. In practice, however, it meant that decisions about which cases to investigate were being made by officers completely unfamiliar with the UFO phenomenon, and it meant that Blue Book slowly became more and more irrelevant as fewer cases came its way. It was the perfect setup for Air Force intelligence to intercept the very best UFO cases before they ever reached Project Blue Book. By March 1954, Lieutenant Olson was gone, and Captain Ruppelt finally retired from the Air Force, was working on a book about his experiences as Project Chief of Project Blue Book. Captain Charles A. Hardin, the new project chief, was particularly adroit at maintaining a low profile, and he impressed no one with his approach to Project Blue Book. Ruppelt's impression was that Hardin was anti-UFO, stating that they bore him. Hynek's take on Hardin was similarly dismissive. He had ambitions to be a stockbroker. Hynek grew comfortable with the slower pace, however, and enjoyed his regular visits to the Blue Book offices. I knew all of these men quite well, lunching with them regularly on my visits to Dayton, sometimes at the officers' club and sometimes at nearby restaurants, he recalled. Occasionally, when one of the junior officers or a secretary had a birthday, I joined in celebrating it with a longer lunch than usual. But I knew my place. I was a consultant, not a director or policy setter. Heineck was in no hurry. I bided my time, he said of this interlude. Meanwhile, my attitude continued to change. As time went on and reports accumulated, so that my database was far more extensive than it had been in the Project Sign days, I came to realize that inherent in the better UFO reports there was much more than fooled the eye or deluded the fool. There was a phenomenon consisting of new empirical observations that demanded far more attention than Blue Book was giving it. During this period of relative inactivity, and still several months before the Kelly Hopkinsville events, the doctor received a letter from an admiring fan. My dear Dr. Hynek, the April 17, 1955 letter began, I have recently had the good fortune to find your article, Unusual Aerial Phenomena, published in the April 1953 issue of the Journal of the Optical Society of America. It is such an unusual discussion of the subject of flying saucers that I am prompted to write to you about it. The admirer, an amateur UFO investigator from New York City named Isabel I. Davis got right to the point. Ever since 1947, I have been seriously disturbed by the attitude that seems to prevail among scientists generally, the superficial character of their investigation and criticism, and the tone of patronizing mockery with which they tend to dismiss the reports. Your statement, ridicule is not a part of the scientific method and the public should not be thought that it is, expresses my feelings exactly. There are a few notable exceptions to this lack of objectivity, of which your article is one of the finest, 
but they are rare when one considers the number of scientists who have been involved in the controversy. Davis had since 1950 been cataloging UFO reports on her own, and she wanted to know the exact dates and locations of 10 of the cases Hynek had discussed in his paper. Hynek, as the notes written in the margins of the letter reveal, handily knew the details of each case. They had all occurred in the time frame of 1951 to 1952, in locations from Jacksonville, Florida to Albuquerque, New Mexico. That Hynek was willing to share even a modicum of information from Blue Book files with an amateur investigator suggests a growing comfort level with the idea of operating ever so slightly outside the purview of the Air Force. Clearly, Hynek was impressed by Davis, whom he later described as one of the most sincere and dedicated UFO investigators I have met. She had immediately earned his trust, and their cordial professional relationship would in time become crucial to the investigation of the Kelly Hopkinsville incident. Before the pieces could be assembled, however, another connection needed to be made, and it would have to wait for several more months when Hynek took on a scientific project of national significance. In January 1956, Hynek took a leave from his duties at The Ohio State University to accept a position with the Smithsonian Institution Observatory at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The new position, which we will examine in detail in the next chapter, represented a giant leap in visibility and prestige and left Hynek, in his own words, with very little time for UFO investigations. Ironic, then, that in the course of performing his new duties, Hynek had the occasion to hire a talented electrical engineer from Hopkinsville, Kentucky, named Andrew B. Bud Ludwith III. Pretty fortuitous was how Hynek described the events that followed. Recognizing their mutual interest in the Kelly Hopkinsville incident, Ludwith shared his interview transcriptions and composite sketches with Hynek, and by the following summer, Ledwith had consented to share them with Isabel Davis as well. Now an investigator with the group called Civilian Saucer Intelligence of New York, Davis, on June 15, 1956, signed a notarized receipt for Ledwith's materials, agreeing not to sell or transmit to any person any portion of the materials under penalty of $10,000. Ledwith was nothing if not cautious. Now it only remained for Davis to get to Kelly and penetrate the wall of privacy that the Sutton family had erected after the events of the previous summer. The participants in this case received so much adverse publicity and personal harassment that they soon refused to discuss the matter with anyone, making further meetings difficult. However, one successful follow-up was made nearly a year later, Hynek wrote, referring, of course, to Davis's work. Under the influence of her quiet yet determined personality, many of the original witnesses were persuaded to review and discuss in great detail the events of August 21, 22, 1955. Her manuscript, in the main, fully supports the earlier investigations of Ledwith. Considered together, these accounts give us a picture of a truly bizarre, and in ordinary terms, completely unexplainable event. So impressed was Hynek with Davis that in the previously cited 1956 letter to Captain Gregory, he mentioned her research to Gregory, gave it high praise, and offered to share it with Blue Book, marking what must be the first and only time that a Blue Book investigation relied almost exclusively on the research of an amateur UFO investigator. This, no doubt, added to Captain Gregory's panic a year later, when he discovered that there was no official case file on the Kelly Hopkinsville incident in Blue Book's possession. How would it look if the head of Project Blue Book relied on the investigative work of an amateur when queried by the press? Hynek's fascination with the case is evidenced by the amount of space he devoted 
to its discussion in his books The UFO Experience, 1972, and The Hynek UFO Report, 1977. Even though Hynek described the case as one that no sober scientist would care to be caught within 10 feet of, few cases garnered as much attention from him in one of his books, let alone two, and it is worth looking at both passages in detail. The Kelly Hopkinsville case, if considered entirely apart from the total pattern of UFO sightings, seems clearly preposterous, even to offend common sense, Hynek wrote in the UFO experience. The latter, however, has not proved a sure guide in the past history of science. Blue book records on this event are sketchy, and little or no investigation was conducted. Still, the case is carried in the blue book files as unidentified. That much it certainly is. I would not have given the Kelly Hopkinsville case this much attention, were it not for the fact that I know the principal investigators Ledwith and Davis well, he went on, particularly Ledwith, since he was in my direct employ for nearly two years on the satellite tracking program. There is an even greater reason. The humanoids are themselves a prototype that has occurred again and again throughout the years, going back, as Dr. Jacques Vallée so convincingly points out in Passport to Magonia, to the myths and legends of many cultures. It is highly improbable that the Suttons, who did not have telephone, radio, television, books, or much furniture, were aware of UFO lore and could have known that many times in the past, creatures like those they had delineated had been described. The resemblance to the little people described by many cultures is striking. We are not, of course, justified in concluding that the Kelly creatures stemmed from the imagination alone, or conversely, that the source of ancient legends lies in the actual appearances of such creatures in the past, or that real humanoids were seen. As in other aspects of the entire UFO phenomenon, the call is clearly for more study. The Suttons themselves were convinced that they had had a real experience, a pattern of reaction I have found consistently. Let the report of Isabel Davis underscore this. Finally, the Suttons stuck to their story. Stubbornly, angrily, they insisted that they were telling the truth. Neither adults nor children so much as hinted at the possibility of a lie or mistake in public or to relatives. There was no trace of retraction. Davis further remarks on the absence of protective rationalization used by UFO sighters who, though personally convinced, wish to remain in the good graces of their fellows by saying something such as, Of course it must have been an airplane, I could have been mistaken, accompanying their disclaimers by an embarrassed laugh or giggle. As she states, The Suttons seem never to... As she states, the Suttons seem never to have been tempted to recant and get back in the good graces of society. Their costly refusal to give an inch to skepticism may not prove anything about the truth of their story, but it does tell us something about them. Hynek's comments in the Hynek UFO report five years later add more detail to his analysis of the case, but this time Hynek had a chance to consider the 1957 statement made by Major Albert to First Lieutenant Kirk, and found it lacking. Then appear in Blue Book the following series of statements which later investigators showed to be untrue. That Mrs. Langford belonged to the Holy Roller Church. She belonged to the Trinity Pentecostal, which holds conventional-type services. That on the night of the occurrence, she had gone to a religious meeting. That her sons, their wives, and some friends had become worked up into a frenzy, becoming very emotionally unbalanced. All of these statements are completely unsubstantiated. They were apparently obtained from Deputy Sheriff Patz, an avowed skeptic, and not from any of the witnesses. 
In fact, in his statement, Major Albert only mentioned talking with one law enforcement officer that day. Deputy Sheriff Batts was at the scene where this supposed flying saucer had landed, and he could not show any evidence that any object had landed in the vicinity. There was nothing to show that there was anything to prove the incident. The story quite naturally met with complete disbelief on the part of most persons, except those who knew the family well, Hynek's account continued. There is no question that Mr. Ledwith, who made the only serious investigation following the event, firmly believed the witnesses. He could find no motive what he could find no motive whatever for a hoax. The simple folk were not seeking complicity. The story quite naturally met with complete disbelief on the part of most persons, except those who knew the family well, Heineck's account continued. There is no question that Mr. Ledwith, who made the only serious investigation following the event, firmly believed the witnesses. He could find no motive whatever for a hoax. The simple folk were not seeking publicity, and indeed suffered horribly from curiosity seekers, reporters, and sensation mongers. It is also highly unlikely that a hoax would involve that many persons and a midnight dash to a police station miles away. Although I had no official connection with the case, I did make an attempt to find out whether there had been any traveling circuses in the area from which some monkeys could have escaped. The monkey hypothesis fails, however, if the basic testimony of the witnesses can be accepted. Under a barrage of gunfire from Kentuckians over a somewhat extended period, it is unthinkable that at least one cadaver would not have been found. Furthermore, monkeys do not float down from trees. They either jump or fall. And anyway, I was unable to find any trace of a traveling circus. If, then, one assumes that the event did take place as reported, and if the creatures had a physical reality, why was not one of them killed under fire? Why did they flip over when hit? What Heinig leaves unaddressed in both books is what happened to the original investigation of the incident by Air Force Intelligence. It's interesting to note that by the time of the Kelly Hopkinsville incident, the 4602nd Air Intelligence Services Squadron had been disbanded, but its mission continued in modified form under the umbrella of Air Force Intelligence. The absurdly confused, comically tortured, ridiculously drawn-out treatment of this entire incident by the Air Force suggests that there were forces perhaps the remnants of AISS, working at cross-purposes with Project Blue Book. Those forces would unavoidably affect Dr. Hynek's career and at great cost. Lucky Sutton's daughter, Geraldine Sutton Stith, pointed out two other mysteries that have gone unsolved since that first night. For one, of course, the glowing substance on the ground. For two, the big burned-out place in the back field where nothing grew for years and years and years but they just wanted to sweep it under the rug and get rid of it. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. Stith, born eight years after the incident, said she knew nothing of the scorched spot until Lucky showed it to her in the late 1960s. Two writers had visited the family two weeks prior and had coaxed Lucky to talk. As he reluctantly recounted his tale for the first time in many years, young Geraldine heard the entire story of the little men from her father's lips for the first time. To help her understand the story, Lucky took her out to the old farm. To help her understand the story, Lucky took her out to the old farm and showed her the burned-out spot where the family believed the UFO had set down. Information that, if the story is to be believed, none of the original investigators had come across, 
and that the family had apparently decided not to share with any outsiders, not even Bud Ledwith or Isabel Davis. That burned-out spot was still visible after 13 years, she said. Finally, one last unanswered question. What happened to Aileen Sutton when she stepped outside the house that night? Did something approach her from the gully? Did something grab at her hair from the roof? Finally, one last unanswered question. What happened to Aileen Sutton when she stepped outside the house that night? Did something approach her from the gully? Did something grab at her hair from the roof? Could those unaccounted for moments have produced some proof of the events long since vanished? When Bud Ledwith visited the Sutton farm the day after the incident, he focused on the women's descriptions of the creatures and doesn't seem to have gone into the sequence of events until he spoke with the men hours later. Bill Burleigh, reporter for the Evansville, Indiana Press, interviewed Aileen the day after the incident and added a few tantalizing details to the story. Mrs. Sutton said the figure looked like it was made of aluminum foil. It had two big eyes pretty far apart, she said. She said the figure seemed to fly or jump right over the house, land in the backyard, and then vanish. Burleigh's report confuses some of the chronology of the events. He placed Aileen at the kitchen door at the back of the house at the instant Billy Ray was at the front door getting his hair grabbed by something on the roof of the house, while other accounts indicated that she had gone outside and encountered the figure prior to joining Billy Ray's at the front door, at which point she pulled him inside to safety. A year later, Davis had an opportunity to ask the reticent Aileen one or two questions, but again the moment she encountered the creature in the backyard apparently went unaddressed. When asked in 2013 whether her Aunt Aileen had ever spoken of her experience outside the house that night, Geraldine Sutton Stith said that to her knowledge, she had not. No, I never got to talk to her about it, she said. By the time I was ready to do something with the story, she had passed. Wish I had talked to everyone before they had passed, but I was too afraid of the story to do that. You have just heard 9,653 words that had to be cut from my book, The Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs. The good news is there are many thousands more words that stayed in the book, and you can read those anytime you want by going to Amazon and ordering it there, or you can order the book at Barnes & Noble, either in a brick-and-mortar store or on their fine website. Or, of course, you can always find it at your neighborhood indie bookseller. You can also download the audiobook version of The Close Encounters Man on Audible. I'm Mark O'Connell, and you've been listening to Farfetched. If you'd like to contact me about the podcast, my email is fetched at protonmail.com. That's capital F-E-T-C-H-E-D at protonmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>